Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum everyone. Peace be upon all of you. Welcome to the Renovatio podcast. My name is John Erdali. I'm today speaking with uh, Professor Andrew March. Andrew March teaches at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in the Department of Political Science. He's the author of quite a few articles and two very highly regarded books. His first book, Islam and Liberal Citizenship, The Search for an Overlapping Consensus, came out in 2009. His more recent book came out in 2019 called The Caliphate of Man, The Invention of Popular Sovereignty in Modern Islamic Thought. His research and teaching is in the areas of political philosophy, Islamic law, political thought, Islamic political thought, I should say, uh, religion and political theory, and also comparative and non-Western political theory more generally. Today, our conversation is going to focus on an article of his that's going to be coming out in the upcoming issue of Renovatio. It's called, What is the Place of Democracy in Islam? And we're going to be having a conversation about some of the themes that were raised in that article. This is great. Andrew is in Slovakia, which is a place that I hope to get to one day. And so we're having a kind of a long distance conversation, taking advantage of this some of the technological benefits of this kind of Zoom age we live in to have this conversation. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Wonderful to be in conversation and uh, looking forward to talk today. You know, this article, it's quite jam-packed with themes related to this very timely, I mean, I say timely, even though, you know, this is, it's been a kind of a hot topic in the Islamic world, the place of democracy and other ideologies in relation to Islam. It's not brand new. It's been with us for, you know, a century or, or, or a couple centuries, depending on how you measure it. And it's kind of hard to find a very logical place to start in the article. So I thought maybe I'd just pick out a few themes and ask you to maybe to talk about it. The first is you talk about democracy in relation to Islam and in relation to modern Islamic movements as a value. And then you point out that it's a newly held value. And my first question, you might say, is if you could, t if you could talk about how, in relation to the Islamic world, democracy operates on the one hand as a value, or does it operate as a procedure? That is to say, is it a set of rules, or is it a kind of an arrangement, or is it both? And to what degree is it either one of those? Because it seems to me there's a big difference between calling it a value, and not only that, but a newly held one versus calling it, let's say, a new method or a procedure or a set of rules, which could then be maybe a new set of rules and so forth. And that, if we could use that, and then I would maybe follow up on the basis of whatever you have to say about that. That's a great question. So first of all, when you ask whether democracy should be understood as a procedure or a set of mechanisms, I think the implied assumption behind that or the implied question that we would need to ask in order to answer that question is whether it is a really existing set of procedures and mechanisms that actually exist and are in operation and thus perhaps in need of further moral or ideological or theoretical justification or whether the idea of democracy as only a set of procedures and mechanisms itself exists as a value, right? And so my brief answer to that question would be, in most countries of the Middle East, even getting to this kind of minimal conception of democracy, where even in the midst of very radical disagreement about ultimate values or ultimate sources of law or authority or ultimate ends, that procedures and mechanisms have been agreed upon sort of temporarily or contingently or as a result of compromise, and in which parties remain ambiguous about their ultimate commitment, that alone would be an extraordinary achievement in most Middle Eastern countries. In fact, you may say that it's only Tunisia, possibly Turkey for a brief period of time, although I don't think many people tend to be exceptionally optimistic about the state of the rule of law and democratic mechanisms in Turkey today. But I think really only in Tunisia do you have the sense that there was a fully agreed upon set of constitutional procedures in which the parties to a drafting of the constitution remain profoundly divided and yet ostensibly committed to a set of procedures and mechanisms. You may have some other sorts of semi-democratic mechanisms in countries like Morocco or Jordan at various points. But by and large, I don't think we really can speak of 
procedures and mechanisms as sort of facts on the ground. And so that I will also say that one of the themes in Islamic democratic theory, precisely because of this concern that it involves borrowing from the West or it involves giving up on an independent Islamic theory of government or system of value, one theme that you find in a lot of Islamic democratic discourse is precisely what you just said, that let's not get all hung up on huge questions of divine versus popular sovereignty or divine versus positive law or something like that. Democracy in the first place is just a set of mechanisms for limiting arbitrary rule and empowering popular representation and consultation. It's a tool like any other modern tool or mechanism of technology or transportation. And so it can be freely borrowed without getting too hung up on the moral controversies. But even that as an ideal remains aspirational in a lot of these discourses and in most Middle Eastern countries. There's a point in there that I want to develop, but before I get to that, maybe it's worth then mentioning because I think it's relevant. You bring up this distinction between a thin democracy or a thin conception of democracy and a thick one. And I think it's maybe important to say something about that. It says something about trajectory, you might say. In other words, what's the spectrum of possibilities that we're dealing with here? Yeah. So even in, in let's say, non-Islamic democratic theory, there are a wide range of theories about the requirements, the purposes, and even the maximal expectations that we should imagine might be forthcoming from democracy. So there are certain kinds of, let's say, very minimal conceptions of democracy that say, like with that sort of, you know, famous Boulderized quote from Churchill that democracy is the worst system of government, except for all the others that have been tried to this point. So certain minimalist theories of democracy sort of see it through the lens of harm reduction. You begin just with the observation that absolute power corrupts absolutely, that you don't want unchecked power, you don't want, you don't believe that any group of people has a right to rule simply by divine right or by historical legacy. And even if you believe in some kind of expertise or rule of experts or epistocracy, that you still want that to be limited because even they would not be perfect if they were left with untrammeled power. And so you say, well, we want some ability for power to be checked and removed and a rotation of power. And that is the simplest thing that puts the fear of God in rulers and allows for some kind of rectification. And so we shouldn't see democracy in much more ambitious terms than the capacity for those who are governed to remove and control those who are in power. A little bit more ambitious than that says that people in a society all have a set of legitimate interests that we don't believe a priori that some interests are necessarily illegitimate and only a small set are legitimate. And yet there is no non-arbitrary way of interest being balanced or adjudicated or agreed upon through any particular system of, again, either expertise or natural law or deliberation. And so we should see democracy as a way of empowering people to have their interests heard and have a chance to have their interests somehow represented in law and policy through representatives. This is not a the, the most minimal conception of democracy, but it's still regarded as a somewhat realist as opposed to idealistic conception because it kind of assumes that people are self-interested, right? That people are not examining their interest, examining their preferences, examining their passions. They're just seeking to have them represented. So you just leave people as they are and don't expect them to be very self-reflective. And then you have more ambitious theories of democracy that really hold out hope that the people can be self-governing not only because they participate directly, but also because they are open to having their preferences changed through encountering others and through processes of exchanging opinion, through deliberation, and that what they think are their preferences or their interests may change as a result of democratic procedures. You also have some theories that say that democratic participation is part of the human good, that the human good is not just in private interests, or not just in contemplation or worship, but is in the practice of politics in public. And there's many versions of this, Aristotelian, Tocquevillian, Arendtian, so on and so forth. Now, on the Islamic side, I think you have a similar trajectory, although some of the issues, I think, play out differently. One is that, particularly among Sunni political thinkers, well, 
We all agree that the ruler is just an agent of the people. Even if the ruler were a caliph, the ruler is not divinely appointed. The ruler is not above the law. The ruler is not the source of the law. The ruler is not sovereign in any kind of Hobbesian sense. And this is a great point of pride for very, very pious Sunnis. Sometimes this has a kind of sectarian tinge to it that unlike those Catholics, we never believed in the divine right of kings. We never believed that law flows from the grace of the ruler. And of course, there's this move to distinguish themselves from Shiites, right? We never believed in the divine designation of successors to the Prophet Muhammad. Our ruler was always appointed by Shura and came from the people as opposed to a vision of infallibility or divine designation. Many kind of minimalist Islamic theories of talking about democracy or constitutionalism sort of begin from there, right? The ruler is just a human, not above the law, representative of the people. So there's nothing religiously sensitive about knocking the ruler down to size. Now, this does come into conflict with some traditional Sunni views about never rebelling against the ruler, obeying the wali al-amr, leaving political matters to the ruler and to the scholars. But I think these are two, even in very, very conservative Sunni tradition, two very conflicting views. And they're not necessarily incompatible, right? You can believe that in an ideal system, the ruler should consult with representatives of the people and other experts. The ruler should be accountable. The ruler should be elected by shura and ratified through bay'ah. And also view that in circumstances in which that's not the case, that rebellion is worse and that there should be patience and there should be forbearance. So these two views are not necessarily intention, but one of the arguments of my piece is that both from my view and from sort of surveying lots of 20th century discourse, there are some kind of low hanging fruit when you talk about modern rule of law, constitutionalism, and even representative constitutionalism in Sunni Islamic discourses. And a lot of the apologetic stuff occurs on this terrain, right? And so what is interesting from an intellectual, moral, political, aspirational standpoint is when Islamic political thought tries to move beyond this towards more robust, sometimes thicker theories of democracy. Political theorists love to use the language of thick and thin, right? Thin theories of the good, thick theories of the good, thin theories of this, thick theories of that. So um, I'm borrowing that language a little bit here. Well, I mean, I mean, you brought up a lot there. I, was, I hope maybe if we have time, we can come back to this question of rebellion and what Sunni political thought has had to say about that. Because I think there's definitely open revolution is definitely frowned upon in the letter, you might say, of, of, of um, Sunni political thought. But then there also seems to be these kind of escape valves that also exist in the theory in terms of acknowledging, you might say, you know, that sometimes people do need to be replaced. And what do you do when the replacement actually happens? So maybe we can come back to that. But I, I did want to pick up on a theme of yours, uh, which is you brought up this question of the of human good more broadly. That is to say, part, you know, a certain mode of political participation and a certain mode of society as, as you know, moving beyond the individual. What I heard there was in a sense that the idea of that question of democracy as a value, right? Because the question of individualism, of kind of the atomized individual, this brings us, of course, into the liberal currents of political thought, you know, the idea of individual freedom, individual fulfillment, or to, to what degree are we by ourselves and kind of, or to what degree are we in society? And what this brings up for me is this broader question of the way in which Islam in Islamic legal theory and, and philosophy has tried to crystallize and articulate this greater good. And if, I mean, you're very familiar with this, maybe some listeners wouldn't be, but you know, in, in, in Islamic legal thinking, you know, going beyond the laws and then going beyond even, you might say, legal procedures, jurisprudence, you have this level of thinking, which is sometimes called maqasid, the objectives of the law. And these objectives are usually framed as you know, these those things which you have to have in a society in order for that society to continue to flourish, and there's varying levels. You know, there's the essential ones, there's the complementary ones, there's the desirable ones. But a lot of people will be familiar with these five or six basic objectives, as they're called: the protection of religion, protection of life, protection of rationality or intellect, protection against slander and of honor, and then of, and then property. The one of those that really jumps out to me in this discussion is that question of the 
the role of what's called an Arabic aql, or what you could translate as rationality, or reason, or intellect, or mind, and also the reasons given for why that's such an important good, that is to say, a good thing, a thing that's worthy of protection by the law in Islam. Because, you know, you, you, typically people will say, well, this explains why al alcohol is forbidden and intoxication and other kinds of things. But it also goes deeper theologically into the, the notion of the fitra, the kind of primordial human nature and kind of what a human being is. And what I'm trying to get to is that Islamic law is, of course, a set of laws. It's a set of procedures. It's a set of rational deliberation. But then it also enshrines within it a certain vision of what is good. But even beyond that, there is a, uh, an implied and even avowed metaphysics, in particular on the question of what is a human being. And so the vision of what a human being is in Islamic law isn't just, it's not negatively defined. That is to say, it's not simply whatever fits into a certain kind of set of procedures that we're thinking about in terms of what's fair, what works, what's reasonable, what's good, and so forth. But there's an actual vision that says this is what a human being is. A human being has this reality within it called the aql or whatever you want to call it, there's a kind of a rational or higher faculty. And then there are these lower passions that we have to deal with. And so that theme cuts through Islamic thought more generally. Human beings as these kind of bundle of urges, you might say impulses and so forth, but able to rise above them and control them thanks to this, and this and, and to understand reality and to understand right from wrong, understand truth from falsehood and so forth and so on. And it seems to me that this is not discussed enough when it comes to political thought, which is to say... Islam presupposes a certain vision of what a human being is that is, in a sense, not really up for debate. It's not only one conception. It's not as though there's just a rigid description. We have to stick to that. But it definitely excludes certain kinds of conceptions, right? So if you have a conception of human beings as, let's say, you know, just very highly developed animals kind of pursuing worldly goods and that's it, that would be, by definition, ruled out by Islamic law and by Islamic even political thought, I would say. And so, you know, this is... I mean, this is a very big topic, but I'm wondering if that aspect of, of the discussion is often left out in Islamic political thought. You know, this idea of sort of putting to the side the question of, well, what is a human being after all? What should politics and what should society, what should the law be doing in order to maintain in a positive sense that, that vision of the good instead of the more, if I can borrow the the phrasing thin conception whereby we're just in a sense limiting certain kinds of harms because if you're going to have a conception of harm you have to have a conception of the thing that's being harmed and that requires a conception of more broadly speaking the nature of the human being that could potentially be harmed and so the harm depends on that metaphysical conception you know I'm, uh, you know this question is kind of getting a little bit long but I'm, I'm reminded of this really interesting article by John Rawls that has this great title a uh, very kind of enticing title. It's called Justice as Fairness, Political, Not Metaphysical. And so there's, I think there's a tendency sometimes in political thinking to try and take these metaphysical questions, you know, what is a human being, what is the universal nature of morality, and sort of put them outside of the realm of politics and to say, well, let's just, let's just do politics and let's worry about these other questions outside. And it seems to me you really can't do that. I think that's one of the main stumbling blocks that kind of operates at a deep level within this kind of encounter between Islamic thought and Western ideologies like democracy, liberalism, and others, which probably needs to be brought out a little bit more. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about any of those themes. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on all those themes. In fact, it's, a, it's such a wonderful question, so rich, and it ties to so many different things. Let me just uh, sort of pick up a few threads that I made a mental note of along your way. First, you said that one of the not only conceptions of the purposes of the law, right, the maqasid al-sharia, is to preserve human reason. And as you said, later Islamic legal theorists would say, we can understand certain kinds of known prescriptions of the law, like the prohibition on alcohol or other kinds of things, as having a rationale, right? Having not just an illa, but a hikmah, a deeper purpose. And so we can group lots of lots of things. But your move was to say, well, this is not, so it, for this to be an objective of the law, it also has to relate to something about theological anthropology or the theological understanding of the human. And again, to keep on with this, you know, there could be like thin and thick theories of aql, right? Like, well, we're not expecting everybody to be Ghazali or, or Plato, but ordinary human beings just to discharge their functions of the law and worship 
have to be of sound reason, right? So you can't make contracts or enter into marriages or sales and prayer and all of these kinds of things if you're not of sound mind. So I think you would agree that lots of Islamic fiqh is not concerned with these very, very high levels of what we sometimes refer to as philosophical perfectionism, right? In which case, they're not saying that the purpose of society is to perfect rationality, but that many requirements and obligations of the law that every ordinary person has to fulfill require being of sound mind, right? You know, I won't go into this in much detail, but, you know, there's so many questions like if a 80-year-old man on his deathbed, you know, is marrying a 14-year-old woman, is this in, you know, good, you know, what effect does this have on inheritance of his, you know, major children and all of that kind of thing, right? At what point can we say that this was a decision not made of sound mind? However, as we know, outside of that kind of technical discussion in FIP, we have ethics, which even in the non-kind of purely felsifa tradition, but in theological ethics, Sufi ethics, there was a lot of interpenetration of these Aristotelian and Platonic ideas with theological ethics and with Sufi ethics, about which I know a little bit less. And just as an aside, I think sometimes this, this strict distinction that you sometimes hear, well, there were the, there were the philosopher, the Farabis that Ibn Sinas, and then they were decisively smacked down by Ghazali. And so you have you know, orthodox teachings on the one hand and Greek philosophy on the other. We know that that is completely not the way that things developed, particularly in areas of ethics and in political thought. Okay, so we're on the same page then in that, in that many theories of Islamic ethics shared with certain Greek and other theories the idea that human perfection is somehow related to mastery of the self, mastery of the lower urges and passions and desires. Of course, in a more you know, orthodox religious sense, you might not want to say that the perfection of unfettered reason is the highest good, but some kind of worship, ibadah, and preparing yourself to be God's caliph on earth are the highest goods. But nonetheless, they have a similar kind of form and structure. Now, for the purpose of this discussion, you could then, what I thought you were going to say, and maybe you had this in mind, but had a lot of things in mind, is that if reason and rationality is known to be a human good, then things which support it and develop it and, per and, and perfect it can therefore be defined as goods or as, or as means which are good in the Islamic tradition. So things which did not necessarily exist at the time of the prophet, the written word, broad education, not the written word, the printed word. Of course, the written word existed. I mean, like printing. And if this spreads reason and rationality, then therefore it's good. Or widespread uh, universal education or so on and so forth. Now, what's this have to do with democracy? And my answer to that, I'm not sure if that was one of your questions, but let me let me have a friendly amendment, is to say, I think that's kind of neutral as, as to what this has to say about democracy. And for good reasons. I think that should be an object of debate rather than an object of assumption or, or premise. So as we all know, this was one of the primary reasons why the philosophers, particularly the Platonists, to, to a lesser extent the Aristotelians, certainly the philosophers in the Islamic tradition, were not very optimistic about democracy because they did not think that the masses reasoned very well. They did not think that they were all capable of reason or perceiving the good and correct modes of reasoning, and that therefore politics ought to be limited to the extent possible by the rule of the wise and the good and those who could control themselves. And so one of the common tropes, for example, in sort of like ethical and Sufi inflected Islamic political philosophy that you see in, you know, medieval uh, thinkers like Isfahani and then later incorporated by Tusi and others that get into the Ottoman tradition is that caliph, the ruler, is a caliph in two senses, that he has personally prepared himself to be Khalifatullah, God's sort of deputy on earth by virtue of his own individual spiritual and moral and psychological per uh, perfection. He can govern himself and therefore is prepared to govern others. Now, this could be an argument for moral government, ethical government, responsible government, but it's not necessarily an argument for democratic government. On the other hand, 
Others might say that when you have a small coterie of rulers that would limit the circulation of information, prevent others from reasoning in public, if people are in fear of being imprisoned or killed for saying things that offend a corrupt human ruler, this is not good for reason and rationality. And it cultivates certain bad habits of the soul. You are obsequious. You learn to use a double speak. You learn to not say exactly what you mean. You learn to please the ruler rather than please the truth. So you might start to creep into an argument that says more rule of law, more open forms of reasoning are actually good for this shari purpose of aql. And there are arguments for that. I just, I don't happen to think they are knockdown arguments because of all the things that we've seen since the spread of mass technology, right? It fosters both good forms of reasoning and really, really atrocious forms of reasoning. Conspiracy theories, demonization of others, forming of insular communities rather than communities that, that, that reason amongst each other. So I'm not one of these like everything that's good must be good for democracy. I myself am kind of ambivalent about democracy. But I think it's an interesting train of thought that you are opening up, which is to say if part of the human good is to, is to use reason, is this good for everybody? Is there a preparation for those who are capable of using the reason? And uh, how should Islamic thinkers who care about this aspect of the law and about this aspect of ethical perfection, how should democracy and mass media and deliberation and the, and the spread of information be regarded? And I think I'm suspicious of any view which takes an either or position, right? One would say, the masses cannot be trusted with new information, therefore we need to keep it under wraps, just like they would say they can't be trusted with philosophical arguments because they might lead to atheism. That could be true, but it's not an argument for sequestering all information. And I'm also skeptical of those that say, you know, the spread of information and, and public deliberation is going to lead to more enlightened people and more virtue and more ethics and better arguments. Both of those are too simplistic and I don't think are supported by history or the facts, but within both of them are arguments that have to be taken seriously. Uh, okay, that was one big theme. The other theme is you said, well, Islam can never be neutral about the good. Absolutely true. Islam can never be satisfied with purely materialist, Epicurean, Hobbesian, materialist conceptions of the human good as the satisfaction of bodily desires. Absolutely true. Now, that leaves at least two very, very important questions. Must it also therefore be true that Islam, when it deals with political philosophy, must be committed to a political philosophy that sees politics as either the primary sphere or a necessary set of circumstances or conditions whereby people are prepared for or in which the attainment of this moral perfection is facilitated? That's one huge question. And I think that there are Islamic answers on both sides. And the other big question is, okay, but what about when Muslims are not just talking to other Muslims, right? And so this Rawlsian view is not that, oh, we don't need metaphysics. Let's, let's stop talking about the human good. It's that discussions about the human good are particularly rich and fascinating and liable to result in a variety of very, very rich sets of arguments. And so to base political justice on widespread agreement around human perfection is very, very unlikely. And so do we just give up on political philosophy? Do we just hope that our conception of perfection wins, hopefully through reason, but if not through force? Or do we find another way of conceiving a political philosophy that honors the search for the good and the search for perfection and the search for flourishing, but says that in conditions of pluralism, considerations of the right or of justice must take lexical priority. So that's how I would rephrase what Rawls and Kant and most others are, are doing. That's really helpful to think about. And if I could if I could maybe just stay on that for a second. The reason the question comes up for me is that I do think one can talk at the level of just, you know, in an academic seminar uh, and sort of theoretically what, you know, how, how does 
how do conceptions relate to courses of action and so forth and so on. But actually in, in the history of it, you know, the contingent empirical history of how things tend to play out and like what we're actually faced with on the ground. I mean, it is the case that democracy, um, historically speaking, this idea of democracy, and, and of course, liberalism, which is not the same thing, and, and, and you know, other related ideas, they do come, you might say, bundled together. They have come bundled together with a certain conception of the human being, a certain conception of the world, or let's say conceptions, right? Multiple, con a certain range of conceptions of the world, a certain range of priorities that, you know, that, that one has. So, for example, if, you, if we turn to something we haven't talked about, let's say Marxism. You know, Marxism is not only, the, the Marxist, let's say, current, is not only a set of arrangements or structures that you set up for the sake of setting up certain kind of goals, but it's a very positive and certain conception of what the world is, what a human being is, what human beings do as they fit in the world, and so forth and so on. And the question is not so much, or is not only, what vision of human nature or of the human good is implied by these procedures, but I think in terms of cause and effect, it usually, I think, is what conception of the human being do I begin with that then gives rise to the set of procedures which to me makes sense given that this is what I think the world is, right? Because if you have a set of rules, if you have a set of conventions, if you say we should do X in case of Y, we should do Y in case of Z, these are the ways that we should sort of set up the rules of the road and so forth and so on. Of course, it only makes sense if there's a world within which those rules can actually work, right? And then those rules also have to be set up with oriented towards a certain set of outcomes, right? And so there's a way in which any kind of political arrangement, any any set of let's let's do things this way, is suspended between, on the one hand, a certain conception of reality, like what is the world? Where does the world come from? What are human beings? What are human potentialities? And then on the other hand, what are we interested in getting to? Like what's what's the destination? Where where are we headed with all of these? And then in between you have to have both of those things. You have to have the factual presuppositions, you might say, and then also the moral presuppositions of where you want to be. And then in between, you can then set up the rules of the road. Should it be democratic? Should it be, should it be a monarchy? Should it be an ownership society? Should we have communism? All these kind of questions. Those are always dependent upon. They're kind of suspended between those two things. And what I see happening a lot in the political debates and online debates, but then also more the kind of the more deeper, more serious ones, I think is this assumption that somehow you can separate those, right? That you can somehow talk about these procedures, but without talking about that basic assumption about human nature. And I don't, I'm not convinced that, let's say, a theorist like Rawls fully has taken on board the ramifications. In other words, I think he's too confident. I mean, I'm just getting a little bit too into the weeds, but I think maybe he's too confident that you can sort of neutralize the question of human nature and of like what human potentialities are, and then move on and kind of navigate between these various conceptions. Because, I mean, it may be to be a bit more concrete about it. Like, there are now conceptions, I think, at this historical moment. We do have people in the political sphere who literally don't accept that the picture of the human being as, let's say, to simplify, you know, you know reason and then these impulses, let's say kind of this this set of desires that can then be tamed and controlled, where people can kind of realize a set of potentialities. That conception itself seems to be losing ground in a lot of, like, for example, in, you know, in the United States, you know, people don't, that very conception itself, like, it implies a certain universal human nature. It implies a certain ability to communicate. It implies a certain ability to come to consensus, to actualize ideals, and so forth and so on. And when we lose that, then the question becomes, can you even have any kind of conversation at all? So I don't want, I don't know if you wanted this whole podcast to be kind of Rawls exegesis, but like, in my view, I think you're mistaking Rawls for the, what I referred to earlier as the like social choice, mere interest group competition conception of democracy, which just says, we don't really need to know that much about humans, but they have preferences. They want to achieve their preferences. It would be bad if one group were able to achieve all their preferences at the expense of others. We don't think there's ever going to be a way of agreeing on a lexical priority. Let's create institutions where the possibility for conflict is minimized and there are procedures where these preferences can be somehow aggregated and lexically ordered. Now, it sounds to me like that's what you think Rawls does. And I actually 
think that that's not where Rawls begins. So Rawls famously begins by saying, I'm not going to assert a single conception of the human, but I'm going to say that the part about the human that concerns us is a moralized one that has two moral powers. One, which is a capacity for a sense of justice, which means that human beings are not psychopaths, right? Human beings, we do not assume are just incapable of considering the interests of others and are completely self-interested. Now, we don't say they're altruistic. We don't say they're angels. We don't say their human good involves pursuing the interests of others. We just say they have a capacity for a sense of justice, okay? They are responsive to those kinds of claims. And we say that a human being is a being that has a capacity for a conception of the good. So a human being is oriented by nature, not just towards satisfying impulses and desires, that's kind of the Hobbesian conception, but towards a conception of the good. And that may be an Aristotelian one, that may be a religious one, that may be a theistic one, that may be a materialist one. But part of what we understand human beings to be doing is not just pursuing bare material interests without regard for others, but pursuing interests and passions that they derive from their own philosophical conception of the good. So that already complicates this idea that we're getting rid of that concern. The point is that there are many such conceptions of the good. If you want to say that, well, Rawls is still kind of cheapening humanity because he is denying that human beings are capable of all agreeing upon or arriving at the true conception of the good, then I guess you're right then you just have to keep on saying, well, why, you know, uh, uh, are, do you constantly want to be engaged in theological disputation between those who believe in a particular scripture and Aristotelians and Darwinists and utilitarians? Like, do you want politics to always be that? And do you not care whether this occurs in certain kinds of conditions in which you may be rationally correct, but politically outnumbered? I want to honor what you're saying about Rawls, that it is not based on the Aristotelian view that politics is about how does man live well and how can the state, how can the city state construct laws to maximize that? That's true. But it is based on the idea, how can as many people as possible live well according to their conception? I mean, the reason I bring him up, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to pick on Rawls. Actually, the reason I mention him is because he is refreshingly one of the few people who's willing to take on this question explicitly at all and address it and try and take a position on it. That's why I thought he was helpful, because he actually has something to say. No, no, by all means, let's pick on Rawls. Let's definitely criticize Rawls, but the actual Rawls and not like a kind of sort of like a, a popular reception of him, which is as like, well, these metaphysical things don't matter. They, they matter so much. That's partly why, you know, he spends all his time talking about them. You know, I think these are really important questions because like I said, I don't think they're talked about too much by any means. I think they're not talked about enough. But so there was one other theme I, I, I did want to bring out from your article, which I thought was, was very important. And that has to do with this question of authority. And what I see as being different kinds of authority and I think that maybe sometimes, at least my reading of how you describe a figure like uh, Rashid Ghanoushi and, and others talking about where authority lies and, you know, and, and sort of how it should be distributed. You know, because when we talk about democracy, the first thing that comes to mind to people, to Muslims, let's say, would be, uh, let's say, political democracy. Uh, that is to say, about questions of power, you know, control over wealth, control over the military, control over the public space, and so forth. But then there's this question of the democratizing of the religious sphere and of religious authority, right? And that the source of authority, not only of politics, in politics, I should say, but also of religious scholars should also be the people, right? So so this, this, this question of the authority of, let's say, the state or people participating in the state versus the of religious authority. Now, it seems to me that those are really, and if... Uh, and if Ganushi and others are making, let's say, the, the, uh, the Tunisian philosopher Rashid Ganushi, if there's a case being made that the authority in politics lies with the people, that's a very different matter to then say that there's also a similar kind of authority that lies with the people when it comes to religious courses, because it's really two kinds of authority. In politics, you're really dealing with questions of legitimate use of violence, coercion, with control over land, control over resources. And that's a certain kind of authority and control, 
whereas the authority and control proper to religious scholars is, is more of a moral authority. That is to say, it's the authority of competence, of expertise, uh, of the recognition of people as not only experts, but of having a certain moral, spiritual quality, a certain kind of erudition that they have to possess intrinsically. And so it's not really within the power of the people as such to grant authority to religious scholars because it's a different kind of authority. And so my question is, is if you talk about authority in terms of politics and then saying, well, there should be a similar structure whereby authority flows from the people into politics and also into the religious sphere, isn't that an equivocation? That is to say, aren't we really talking about two different kinds of hierarchy and two different kinds of elites, but using the same word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's where all the interesting action is. And again, particularly when you're dealing with Sunni thought, there are ways in which this is a major development. I'm trying to avoid the word innovation for obvious reasons, but this is a major like development in thought. But it also has its origins in Islamic thought, right? Which is how often are Sunnis very proud to say there is no church in Islam? Right? There is no ecclesiastical hierarchy. And this is a point of pride. Right? What is the word? So Hannah Arendt had this famous essay, What Was Authority? Okay. Well, if you say, what is the word for authority in Islam? Well, we have words like sulta or marja'i or things like this, but really the word for authority in Islam is ilm. It's knowledge, which is based on your proofs, your adilla. Now, and that is not egalitarian, not just completely without regard for expertise or authority, but it's not something that you can give by command. It is something that is earned through training, but it's also a matter of recognition. Now, so that's one point, no church. Second point is plurality of sources of authority. How often is this a point of pride for Sunni Muslims? That there is mutual recognition across legal schools, across even, you know, theology for obvious reasons is a little bit more sensitive, but uh, above a certain kind of plateau, a, 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 an area in which different kinds of theological schools can recognize each other as not heretical. And what is it that grants different kinds of legal schools or scholars their authority? Now, yes, we know that historically, the right to be a judge comes from the Wali al-Amr or the Sultan or the Khalifa. And under the Ottomans, as well as to a lesser extent, the Mamluks, you had certain kinds of legal schools that were appointed by the Sultan as official. But by and large, the recognition of legal schools came from popular support. Okay, so you have these germs, not of democracy, not of like complete anarchy and religious authority, but this idea that the people is not just a passive object of training or discipline or guidance, but that the scholars kind of percolate up from the people in a certain kind of sense. Okay, so that's one point. The other point is it is widely acknowledged, not only by those that happen to be named Wa'il Halak or happen to have read Wa'il Halak a lot, that we are in a crisis, not only of authority in general, but of the state. If the idea is that the state can never be democratic and the state can never be neutral because the foundational authority of the state is that it serves to embody Islamic law. Okay, good. Who's Islamic law? Who are your scholars? Can you imagine a scenario in which there is widespread agreement that the scholars appointed are not ulama asulta, the scholars of this or that authority or appointed by the palace, right? Or that they do not lose something of their authority when they are appointed by the palace. So this idea that you could preserve, not just reinstitute, but preserve an inherent Islamic epistocratic impulse by saying that religious authority belongs to the scholars and they are represented in the state. Could you depoliticize that? It's very easy to say that's not democratic, and I agree with you, but it's a lot harder to say that this could be depoliticized, which is what a lot of people intend by that imaginary. I also agree, contra Halak, that it was ever depoliticized and separate from state authority, but that's a separate discussion. So today we're existing in this state of crisis about this. And then there's a third point, which is that you distinguished religious authority from political authority. That's great. But that assumes that religious authority is this one silo, which it's not, because you could have religious authority as pertains to areas of theology, creed, areas of religious authority as pertains to worship, right? The things that are sort of basic matters of 
of discharging obligations of Ibed. You have areas of religious authority that pertain to how to be in the world as a Muslim. How can the authority of fiqh continue to guide people, not in legislation, not in agreed upon matters of worship, but in matters of being in the world? Then you have those areas in which you think that laws and policies and public power ought to be an expression of religious guidance. Now, we're very, very well aware of this classical distinction between ibadah, the ibadat, and the mu'amalat. So you have this idea that in areas of social relations, the stakes of infallibility and consensus are not what they are in areas of theology and creed and worship. They're already contestable matters. Second, they are matters that pertain to both text and to maslaha. As you mentioned earlier, the maqasid, they are partly, not entirely, rationalized by the way that they bring about welfare to humans. They have to be good for people. Now, who knows what's good? The scholars don't just know text. They also know something ideally about human welfare and the good, but they don't have a monopoly on that. They don't have a monopoly, certainly on practical knowledge of economics and agriculture and education and all kinds of other things. So even sticking to this idea of religious authority, you see how despite yourself, you can start backing in to this view that it is hard to easily sequester broader forms of knowledge and perspective, even from the pursuit of religious authority. Now, it doesn't mean you back all the way in to a view in which the people is ultimately sovereign over the meaning of the Sharia with no regard for expertise or scholars, but it's a dialectic. It's a problem rather than a fixed point of departure. I mean, I take your point about how the scholars of the law, even scholars of theology, just, you know, the ulama in general, this idea that they could be completely depoliticized. Of course they can't be, right? Because even if they tried to escape politics, a scholar of a certain stature would find politics coming to his door throughout Islamic history. So it's not so much the question of whether or not, let's say, ilm, that is to say, the, 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 the province of uh, the ulama can be depoliticized, but whether or not it's going to become completely politicized, that is to say, gobbled up and kind of completely taken over by politics and by these other questions of authority and power and so forth and so on. Because, you know, we're, in, we're living in a time now where it seems as though every expression of knowledge or of truth or of any kind of moral claim is almost reflexively reframed and re-understood, not as about something, but as I say, about some known truth or some known moral maxim or some kind of known command, but rather something having to do with a kind of a power relationship, a power constraint. On the question of um, the depoliticization, you know, can we depoliticize the ulama? Can we depoliticize uh, Islamic learning? I think if you look at books written over a thousand years, it seems pretty clear if you look at the history, if you look at what scholars have had to say about it, that it, it's very hard for any kind of person of note or any kind of scholar of any rank to somehow avoid completely politics. You know, the sultan will somehow find him or invite him or, you know, people find themselves in jail. Uh, you know, th people do get politicized. It's very hard to separate those spheres out from each other. So I, I grant what you're saying about, you know, it's not a silo and it can't be a silo if we're really looking at the facts on the ground. But I suppose what I'm concerned about more is the notion that somehow that the religious sphere and of course, even that word religion is very hard to define, but just for the sake of the argument, that the religious sphere is somehow only politicized. That is to say that it's not only is it politicized somewhat, but that it's completely political. And this, I think, is a very common idea now. This is really where things are trending. That is to say, any claims to truth, any claims to morality, any claims to certain kinds of uh, objective rules, certainly any kind of religious claims, are somehow not really what they are claiming to be, but rather they're simply expressions of power, uh, power relationships, uh, certain forms of domination and control, a kind of ruse or collective illusion whereby certain people exert control and subordinate other people to their, to their desires for all sorts of reasons other than the actual subject matter, which is, let's say, the nature of God, the nature of human beings, what human beings are supposed to do and so forth. This is a kind of a... This is a kind of a 
a, a, a surface form that is actually disguising the underlying power relationships. And so one danger it, that's introduced in, you might say, politicizing, or let's say talking about religious authority as flowing from the same source of authority that democracy flows from, is that in a sense it robs it of its own particular area of concern, right? And so then everything in a sense becomes political. Not that religion can be completely depoliticized because of, you know, I, it's, it's, I think it's hard to find somebody, somebody making that claim explicitly, but rather that it becomes completely politicized. And not only that, but it becomes politicized in a certain narrow way. Right? It's not just politicized in the sense that it now has become thrown into the, the world of dynastic succession or something like that. Right? It's politicized according to a certain way of looking at politics, whether it's democratic or Marxist or what have you. And that, I think, is the danger of, you might say, kind of melding together political authority and where it comes from and religious authority and where it comes from. I grant you, it's complicated. They kind of interlace. They intermingle. But in order for things to intermingle, there have to be two things, right? And I think what happens is that we're heading towards this notion of this just one large social sphere, kind of collective, political, social, economic sphere, in which everything is, in a sense, the same kind of relationship. And so my relationship with my political representative, with my ruler, with my parliamentarian, is the same, essentially, kind of relationship I have with the local sheikh or with the local professor of Islamic studies or something like that. And so don't, don't you see, I mean, isn't there a danger, you might say, that it kind of dissolves the sphere of the religious? In other words, if these two are contending with each other in this way, one of them has to lose out because you're, you're taking away the traditional source of authority, which is, I mean, one has to be frank, the, 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 the authority of the ulama comes from some kind of relationship with the truth, some kind of relationship with the moral, some kind of relationship with the revelation, in the case of Muslims specifically, and if everything just becomes a question of the popular will, then eventually that special area of concern will eventually become a kind of symbolic one. Yes. So very, very important set of reflections. I have two kinds of thoughts that I want to toss back. One, let's be more explicit. Who is saying these things? Who is saying that a particular sheikh or scholar's view is just political? I don't have an answer, but like that would be the follow-up. And then the question is, well, are you hoping that they would not say that, that they would not think that, that it's wrong, so they should not be wrong? They should not be in a position to think that or say that or perceive that? So that's one set of questions, which is, who is dismissing religious knowledge as merely political? And then you say, well, do you not want such people to be able to speak or that you want them to realize that they're making a fundamental mistake about the nature of what religious discourse is saying? But then that leads to the second thing, which is I wonder if there's a certain kind of tension or even contradiction in your views. That earlier said, I don't want to be a liberal because politics should not be neutral as to the good and it should not be neutral as to human nature and human truth. But now you're saying, but I don't want religious discourse to always just be reduced to the political. And so I wonder if you can have it both ways. So let's just pick on Aristotle since he's neither, you know, the prophet nor Rawls. You know, Aristotle would say, yeah, you're damn right it's political, right? Because the human being is political. And yes, there are these other views about what is the human good. Some think it's self-interest, some think it's bodily pleasure, some think it's glory. They're wrong, I'm right, I can show you how, and I don't need to pretend that it's not political because it is political, except for this little thing about contemplation, but let's not talk about that too much. So I wonder whether someone like you, who in the first half of the discussion says, I don't like this view that politics is not engaging in metaphysics and that metaphysics is not engaging in politics and that Rawls and liberals and democracy want us to think about politics only as self-interest or negotiating between different interests. I want it to be about this commitment to the human good and flourishing and perfection and what the human really is. But then you want to say, but I don't want anybody to ever say, hey, you religious scholars, you religious political philosophers, what you're saying is driven by political motivations. 
I wonder whether you can have both of those views. I can see where you might have gotten that. I want to refine that a little bit then, if that's what you got. It's true. I don't believe that you can somehow neutralize the problem of metaphysical presuppositions from these big, weighty political questions. I think that's that's not really something that you can... You can reduce it. You can somehow... You can make it explicit. You can somehow communicate them so that everyone is, on a, in, in a sense, in a more open space. But they can't be eliminated. But that, I think, is different. It doesn't, therefore, mean that I then am advocating for a particular form of politics that, in a sense, is pushing for a certain kind of moral perfection. That is to say, I think it's possible to bring in a lot of the concerns that you brought up, that is to say about, you know, let's let's anti-authoritarianism, public participation, that people should have means of recourse to change rules. So that question of, it's true uh, that I do believe that you can't disentangle these metaphysical presuppositions from these kind of big weighty questions of politics. And that there definitely is, I think, a certain conception of human nature that we can't do away with. I don't think that it necessarily therefore means that I'm committed to a certain program on the part of, let's say, the state of, let's say, perfecting people um, or of pursuing a particular regime of improvement or of making people, right? I think there's still a lot of flexibility there. I think Islamic law in particular throughout history has shown how you can have pluralism within Islam and also pluralism of communities where you have different kinds of communities existing within the same political arrangement. I don't think that there's a connection, and I know that you're not saying that I said this, but there's not a necessary connection between this broader picture, this broader conception of metaphysics, let's say a kind of a rigidity to how politics might play out. I I think even there, there's a lot of flexibility that's possible. And so in the, in the modern, in the contemporary context, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, you know, you'll say the role of the religious scholar. There's no real algorithm for maintaining this. I just think that there has to be a certain way in which we have to be committed. Or I'll say I'm committed to the idea that religious authority, again, that's a problematic term, that religious authority has to be able to maintain its own area, kind of its own sphere of action, you might say. But that doesn't mean that it's not subject to questioning. It doesn't mean that it it doesn't have to negotiate with other areas of life. It doesn't mean that the, let's say, religious positions or that religious scholars are somehow unassailable, untouchable, that they can't be questioned, that they can't be shown to be telling lies, that they can't be shown to be, let's say, morally questionable even. Again, my, my concern is, in a sense, with, if my meaning is coming across, maintaining that view of human society and human beings that enables, if, since we're talking about the Islamic case, for that particular sphere of authority of, I'm glad you used the Arabic term, ilm, to kind of maintain its autonomy, right? A certain, and autonomy does not mean rigid autonomy. It doesn't mean a silo. It doesn't mean untouchable. It doesn't imply any particular arrangement of power. It does require at least an acknowledgement of its particular domain. And I think even the very acknowledgement of that domain itself has been called into serious question. And I can see, let's say, in the, in the coming decades, where that domain in itself will, in a sense, be shrinking. Maybe if I'm understanding what you were, the position that you were coming with. Well, I think my position is that there have been many, many Islamic voices that have said, we reject the modern secular view that religion has its own domain, and that it must stay within its own domain autonomously. That's the view that we reject. Everything is within religion's domain. So my concern was to say, do you want to be on the side of those who say, yeah, we secular liberals and we devoted religious believers agree that there are different domains. We may sometimes disagree on whether this or that belongs to this or that domain, But on the principled view that there are different domains, we're in agreement. So it's a matter of negotiation. Now, that's very different from all of those who say we, and there are Catholic integralists, and there are Muslim, for lack of a better term, integralists, that say that's the view that we reject, that religion can be kept in its own, that religious authority can be kept in its own autonomous sphere. Now, even if you don't like my way of putting that, 
there's still the question of how do we know what belongs to religion's domain and who decides. So if you read the Catholic integralists, they will say, we don't, you know, we don't want priests to rule. But the point is on anything that pertains to religious freedom and religious authority, religion has supremacy. Guess who decides whether something is a religious matter? The church, not the state. So you'd still have to tell me, okay, is gender part of the religious domain? Is sexuality? Is poverty? Is the environment? Is corruption? Are these things that are in or out of this quote-unquote autonomous religious sphere? I mean, all we have to do is solve the problem of defining religion. I guess everything would be solved. So why don't we, why don't we turn oh, to that right. now in the couple of minutes that we have left and solve the problem? <laughs> I mean, that really, what you mentioned about the domains, I, I mean, it can really lead to a lot of conversations. I know Sherman Jackson is working on a, on a, on a he's got a major project he's working on called the, uh, the Islamic Secular, which I know will probably address a lot of these things. Hopefully it can be even, we can even look at that book on this podcast series. And, uh, you know, because... What you just brought up is really such a is such a huge intellectual challenge to try to really define not only where are the boundaries, but you know what's the nature of the terrain upon which you're drawing these boundaries. Like, what are the stakes? What is the content of these things? What's the actual nature of the subject matter that we're arguing over? It's not always easy to disentangle, you know, and 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 defining terms like religion and the secular and politics is 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 part of that challenge. Well, uh, we're coming to the end of our time, Andrew. This has been a very enjoyable discussion. You've brought up a lot of issues. I really encourage people to read your article in Renovatio. And thank you. And I hope we can maybe have another conversation again on the podcast in the future. Great. Thanks so much. I always enjoy speaking about these issues with you. And hopefully uh, it'll be uh, continued very, very soon. So it's not a thank you, goodbye, but a thanks for now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Take care. Mm -hmm. 